Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, Episode 10. Welcome back. In this episode, we'll be talking about the divided brain and the unhappy consciousness. And before I get into the subject matter at hand, I would like to start with a, a quote that's attributed to Albert Einstein. And uh, there's some disagreement on whether Einstein actually was the first one to say this, or there's a report that he had this written on his blackboard in his office in Princeton University, or he may have had it as a sign on the wall. Anyway, the quote is, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. And this episode will deal with just that issue. I will be focusing a lot on a book entitled The Master and His Emissary, which was written by Ian McGilchrist back in um, 2009. And this book was very instrumental in getting me involved with Hegel, by the way. Um, but in this book, it describes the differences between the right half of the cerebral cortex and the left half. And I'll be getting into a lot of detail about what the differences are between these two halves and how it relates to Hegel. But let me first start with a, a review of just what the title refers to, the master and his emissary. McGilchrist claims that the story of the master and his emissary comes from Nietzsche, but he gives no specific reference to this as he says he can't remember where he saw it. And interestingly, I did some research on this. Most Nietzsche scholars are pretty much unanimous that Nietzsche never told such a story. But anyway, here, here's, here's the story that McGilchrist seems to remember. At one time, there was a wise spiritual master in some faraway land, and he had a very large empire, and he needed help running it. And he had several emissaries to help him with this. They would go out and get into the nitty-gritty of each section of the territory and help, um, help him run things. And um, he needed to do this because he, it would be too much for him to, to have to understand everything that was going on in all the territories. Uh, and he needed his emissaries to help him. However, one particular emissary took more and more control of operations in his dealings and saw the master as being weak and passive. And as this emissary took more and more power, he eventually usurped the master's position completely and established himself as the master. And then as a result, the, the kingdom turned to ruin. So that's the story. And we'll be analyzing how that relates to the left brain and right brain and Hegel. Um, in a nutshell, uh, McGilchrist believes that a similar situation with the master and the emissary is going on with the two sides of our brain. The right brain is the more holistic. It should be the master. The left brain, the analyzer, with its focus on particulars, should be the emissary. And the right brain needs the help of the left brain to fully comprehend any situation. Um, it has its own right brain view, and then it incorporates the left brain view through a Hegelian sublation for a full comprehension. And again, we'll be going into this in detail. Um, now, the premise of the book, um, in addition to 
talking about this um, left brain, right brain, is that the left brain is becoming more dominant in the world. And this has been happening over centuries. Um, it, to the extent that we hardly even understand the right brain's um, goings on anymore. Um, uh, we tend to go to the left brain fully for everything in our society, in our world. And as I said, this has been going on for centuries, which McGillcrest uh, documents. So the mastership of the right brain has been usurped. But let's step back for a moment and review uh, what uh, all the research on left brain, right brain. The concept originated by a scientist, Roger Sperry, in the 1960s. He was a, an American neuropsychologist and biologist. He actually won a Nobel Prize for his work. And um, what he found was that our cerebral hemisphere, the top part of our brain, is split into two halves, right and left. And it's connected by a corpus callosum. These are part of the brain that regulates the flow of neurons and such between the two hemispheres. And in doing epilepsy treatment, they found that by severing the corpus callosum to keep the right side um, out of contact with the left side and vice versa, they could help um, epileptics because the, if it affects one side of the brain, it wouldn't go to the other side of the brain. And what they noticed, though, was something very interesting. Once they severed the corpus callosum in these patients, they kept functioning like nothing else had happened. So the question was, why was the corpus callosum needed at all? Well, they did some tests, and they found some pretty amazing things. Patients would report, patients that had the corpus callosum disconnected, that, for example, one arm would reach for a shirt in the closet, and the other arm would put it back. Hmm. Others reported things like one hand would be unbuttoning a shirt and the other hand would follow along and button it back up. So each half of the brain had its own life, if you will, seemingly ignorant of the other half. And they did a lot of research and they found that there were really two worlds in the left brain and the right brain. The left brain is more verbal, analytical, orderly than the right brain. It is concerned with things like reading, writing, and computations. The left brain is also connected to logic, sequencing, linear thinking, mathematics, facts, and thinking in words. The right brain, on the other hand, is more intuitive and visual. It's more creative and less organized way of thinking. In its thinking, it, um, it's more involved in imagination, holistic thinking, the arts, rhythm, nonverbal cues, feelings, visualization, and daydreaming. Um, some key points before we move on. Um, they found that both sides can pretty much do the work of the other side if needed. With people that have damage to one side of the brain, the other side can, can pick up and, and, and do things. They've also seen the divided brain in animals. Uh, in a more primitive state, for example, with birds, the, uh, they found that the right eye of a bird, which is controlled by the left brain, is the one that looks for food in the environment. And the left eye, which is controlled by the right brain, scans the, ter the terrain for predators, gets the big picture of everything. So uh, that's interesting. And also, left brain and right brain is not a personality type. You hear a lot today in the jargon, oh, he's so left brain or he's a left brain type or don't be so left brain. Um, and it, this is not really held up in testing. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test, which is based on Jungian sensor thinking, feeling, intuitive, the four personality types. 
perhaps the left brain, right brain can relate to intuitive sensor dimension. But again, we're not talking about just a personality here. It's much more fun fundamental. It affects society and culture. Also, there's a relatively recent book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's gotten a lot of attention. And this is not really describing a left brain, right brain difference. It's a different cut at all about problem solving and analyzing. And it's really not about the left brain, right brain tendencies that we're covering here. Let me read a um, quote from a, um, an interview that was done with um, Ian McGilchrist by the uh, Royal Society of the Arts in 2013. and explains this uh, very well. And I quote, because of its narrow focus and emphasis on getting certainty, the left hemisphere sees only bits and pieces, fragments which it attempts to put together to form a whole. The less left hemisphere alone encodes tools and machines. In the living world, context is everything, but this is neglected by the left hemisphere. Thus, the left hemisphere prefers the explicit without understanding that rendering things explicit and isolating them under the spotlight of attention denatures and ultimately kills them just as explaining a joke or a poetic metaphor robs it of its meaning and power. The view through the lab window distorts the meaning of everything most precious to us. The natural world, sexual love, art, and spirituality all fare badly when treated in this detached and decontextualized way. So what does this have to do with Hegel? Well, a lot, actually. Um, basically, this relates to Hegel's core notions of understanding and reason, two different concepts for Hegel. Understanding in German Verstand is, um, understanding is fixing, isolating, and analyzing. It's associated with concepts in a general sense, turning sense data into knowledge. Reason, on the other hand, Vernunft, if I pronounce that correctly, in German, um, reason is what comprehends total unity. It breaks down false or limited distinctions, it resolves conflict, it's dialectical, it resolves contradictions in, t in terms of high, higher unities. And importantly, for Hegel, reason is cognitively superior to understanding. So you can see the, the correlation here. Understanding corresponds to left brain thinking and reason corresponds to right brain thinking. Obviously, Hegel didn't know about the brain hemispheres in his day, but he grasped the differences nonetheless in, in terms of his, his writings. Um, Hegel's reason gets right into the life of the thing where Hegel's understanding stands apart and analyzes. Let me read a quote from Hegel. This comes from paragraph 53 of the preface of the Phenomenology of Spirit. A table of contents is all that understanding gives. The content itself does not furnish, it does not furnish at all. If the specific determination is one that in itself is concrete or actual, it all the same gets degraded into something lifeless and inert, since it is merely predicated of another existing entity and not known as an imminent living principle of this existence. Nor is there any comprehension of how in this entity its intrinsic and particular way of peculiar way of expressing and producing itself takes effect. This, the very kernel of the matter, formal understanding leaves to others to add on later. Instead of making its way into inherent content of the matter at hand, understanding always takes a survey of the whole, assumes a position above the particular existence about which it is speaking, i.e. it does not see it at all. That pretty much sums it up very well.
Um, now, there's another very important Hegelian concept called sublation, Aufgebund in German. Um, and this is a, one of the most critical concepts in all of philosophy, Hegel states. And um, in the same paragraph in the Phenomenology of Spirit, he goes on to show how reason then takes what understanding has to offer and sublates this to a new greater whole. The right brain, um, being the master, sends out the, its emissary, the left brain, to scope things out. The emissary returns with the information which the right brain incorporates into its essential knowledge through sublation. Now, I'm going to read a, an additional um, part of paragraph 53 to show how this sublation works. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read what Hegel has to say, but I'm going to add in comments from McGillcrest, which he d did in his book on page 206, um, comments on how this relates to the left brain, right brain. So any comments on left brain, right brain from McGillcrest, the rest is Hegel. Uh, this probably would be would work better seeing it written down, but anyway, here goes. It's Hegel. True scientific knowledge, on the contrary, demands abandonment to the very life of the object, that which the right brain can provide. Or, which means the same thing, claims to have before it the inner necessity controlling the object and to express this only, steeping itself in its object, as the right brain does, it forgets to take the general survey, which is merely a turning of knowledge away from the content back into itself, as the left brain would do. But being sunk into the material in hand and following the course that such material takes, true knowledge returns back into itself, yet not before the content in its fullness, fully unpacked by the left brain, is taken into itself, is reduced to the simplicity of being a determinant characteristic, it drops to the level of being one aspect of an existing entity, not just what the left brain sees, but in context of the right brain, and passes over into its higher truth, the sublation afibung for the left and right brain. By this process, the whole as such, surveying its entire content, itself emerges out of the wealth wherein its process of reflection, reflection seemed to be lost. The return to the right brain recovers the whole, made richer by the left brain, in which it had threatened to be lost. So, that's a very great example of how what Hegel is speaking to, the difference between understanding and reason and the left brain, right brain, and what's going on. Um, how he expressed it so, so clearly in the phenomenology of spirit. I'd like to move on now and talk... Uh, some about how this relates to Hegel's famous concept of the unhappy consciousness. And just in general, he deals with the unhappy consciousness in the phenomenology of spirit uh, in the Miller translation, say pages 126-127. But I need to back up just a little bit and talk about Hegel's um, master-slave relationship, which he talks about earlier in the phenomenology. Um, Hegel uh, the master-slave relationship is is, um, is is Hegel explaining that the realization of self-consciousness is really a struggle for recognition between two self-consciousnesses bound to one another. He goes into a lot of detail. It's one of the most famous um, things discussed in the phenomenology of spirit. Um, and after this first confrontation, this initial confrontation, one consciousness becomes the Lord, the other becomes the servant or bondsman. And we can do a whole episode on this, and I'm sure we will in the future. But right now I bring it up 
because I want to show how Hegel then goes to show that this lordship bondsman split can be internalized in one consciousness. And this brings us to the unhappy consciousness. And in discussing this, I uh, found a very interesting write-up by one Andrew Shanks. Um, and he's written about the unhappy consciousness in relationship to Hegel and McGilchrist. He is a canon in the Episcopal Church in Manchester, England. And he's written a book called Hegel and Religious Faith, Divided Brain, Atoning Spirit, published in 2012. And he actually wrote a paper just prior to the publication of this book on Hegel and religious faith, which was published by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And I want to read a quote from, from that uh, paper. Here's um, Shanks. The unhappy consciousness is a condition of inner servitude. Famously, earlier in the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel has discussed in quite abstract terms the dialectical relationship between master and slave as two individuals. The unhappy consciousness, on the other hand, is introduced as an internalization of the master-slave relationship. That is to say, it's the dialectical interplay between two aspects of one and the same self, a master aspect and a slave aspect. But this is after the usurpation which uh, McGilchrist's allegory describes. What Hegel calls the inner master is, in fact, the emissary as usurper. And what he calls the inner slave is, in terms of McGilchrist's allegory, the true master, now reduced to servitude. Hegel is, in effect, talking here about the spiritual condition of one in whom the power of left hemisphere thought, gone stale, broadly speaking, has, come, has become despotic, an inner despotism of rigid prejudice and cliché, sheer willful close-mindedness. It's a condition of being inwardly split apart. As regards the individual's relationship to self, it's just the most fundamental corruption of spirit. But to some extent, we all suffer from it. Shanks believes there's a better way to express this unhappy consciousness term. He calls it unatoned state of mind. And I kind of like that. I, I think that actually is what more to what Hegel is speaking to. Unhappy sounds too much like a lack of bliss and And we talked about bliss and in the last episode of this podcast. Um, unatoned seems to be more what Hegel is getting at. Uh, let me quote further from Shanks in the same article. The necessary splitting into two that immediately belongs to spirit is the development of a capacity for two sorts of thinking. Not only the direct, fresh registering of concrete reality, but also abstract reflection on experience. As we might now say, it's the partnership between the two cerebral hemispheres. In the unatoned state of mind, however, the problem is the proper partnership between these two sorts of thinking is broken down. It's become a rivalry, and the capacity for abstract reflection has started to tyrannize over the capacity for direct, fresh registering of concrete reality. Theoretical hypotheses and imaginative pictures have gone stale, and the staleness has, moreover, been invested with repressive authority. And he continues, For again, being unatoned means fooling oneself. To be atoned with and opened up to reality is to lay oneself fully open to being changed by fresh experience. Yet the inner despot self of the unatoned state of mind, addicted to cliché and reassuring prejudice, is a spirit of sheer, censorious resistance to all such change. Therefore, Hegel calls it literally the unchangeable, or perhaps better put in this psychological context, the rigidity principle. 
Its workings include every sort of resistance to thoughtful change of mind, stubborn, arrogant, or sanctimonious. The rigidity principle projects itself so it purports to speak on behalf of God or whatever other idolatrous concept its immediate cultural environment supplies. Set over against it, on the other hand, is another sub-self, potentially the agent of thoughtful change, but too insecure to push such change through against the rigidity's principle's resistance. The second adaptable sub-self keeps rising up, only straightway to be put down again. One must certainly be grateful that the adaptable aspect of the self does keep springing back, for otherwise we'd become mere robots. But this constant return of the repressed is just what makes the unatoned state of mind unhappy. Okay, let's move now to the current state of affairs in the world. And um, just to, an aside, you know, if, if I ask my friends, uh, you know, do they believe that there's a, a mind? Uh, most of them would say that there's, well, it comes down to it, there's just atoms and nerve cells in the brain. There's no mind per se other than these nerve cells bouncing around. And I know that's a simplistic way of stating it, but probably many philosophers and scientists feel exactly the same way. They believe everything is physical. Um, naturalism, materialism seems to be the way today. And in this thinking, I see left brain dominance everywhere. Let me quote Jonathan Rawson from the interview with McGillcrest um, from the um, RSA interview that I mentioned earlier. The suggestion is that slowly but surely the left hemisphere's perspective shapes our culture in such a way that the culture begins to respond to it as the dominant one. The thesis matters because there is a very real danger that we may reach what McGillcrest calls a hall of mirrors in which the explicit, instrumental, defined, confident, abstract voice, not unlike the current voice of the materialistic orthodoxy in neuroscience or the neoliberal voice placing unqualified faith in markets, becomes the only one we appreciate, while the relatively implicit, intrinsic, fluid, visceral perspective of the right hemisphere begins to sound diminished and irrelevant. So, here's my hope. I'm hoping that the resurgence of Hegel today may be part of a turning point in the world away from pure materialism. And there are other positive things going on, not just the resurgence of Hegel. Uh, hopefully we can bring more of a purpose and meaning to life through a greater understanding and a greater integration of, the, of reason and understanding of the two brain hemispheres. The pendulum needs to swing back to a better balance. We need to use both brain hemispheres. We need a, an atoned state of mind within ourselves and within society at large. So again, going back to the um, initial quote from Einstein's blackboard, not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted. Thank you very much for listening. This is Gregory Novak again, the Cunning of Geist podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.